Uh, we've been talking a lot about David for a long time now. I know this is the case because the other night, two nights ago, I had a dream. Um, there was this uh, this natural pool with a waterfall. Um, it, it, it's actually from, in real life, Susan Creek, where I was just backpacking. Um, so there's this pool, waterfall, and it happens to be in King David's uh, palace, right? right in his throne room. And there's David sitting on this opulent throne, and I am there with my fly rod, and I'm sick of catching the little tiny rainbow trout that I, in real life I did catch. And I want the big ones that have to be deep in the pool. So I'm going deep for this fish. I hook one. I'm excited. I see it flash so I can, like, I can see how big the fish is. And I yell, David, get the net. And, and he must have been excited too because he wasn't offended that I didn't call him King David. He ran, got the net. We got the fish. So anyway, we've been in First and Second Samuel for uh, a while now. Um, so today I, I ask, where is your hope? Uh, As we read scripture, I think it becomes more and more clear that our hope is in knowing God, in in, in being made right with God, being reconciled with God. So when I say knowing God, I don't mean like we know facts or stats about God, but that we actually know Yahweh. God's people should be a people uh, who are characterized as people who abound in hope. After all, Yahweh is described as the God of hope. Um, Our truth statement today, and I know two weeks ago, the truth statement I made was so long. So I'm really trying to like shorten it up here. So hopefully this is concise uh, enough. Um, It's this, place your hope in God's everlasting promise to save through his anointed king. Okay, place your hope in God's everlasting promise to save through his anointed king. And we'll see how confident David is in in God's promise. Now I wonder, is your confidence in life, is it built on God's promise? David was so confident. And considering all that we know about his life, I think it's really remarkable that he was so confident in the Lord. So jumping right in to 23, starts off, it says, now these are the last words of David. So uh, last words, um, I hope that, that I have last words that are, uh, that are intelligent, that are wise, that are... Um, well, that people can even follow. My, la- my grandpa said some last words to me that were weird, and he just, he wasn't quite there. It, I don't remember what they were because they weren't worth remembering, but we want our last words to, to mean something. I don't think we are to literally take necessarily, these were David's exact last words. He speaks in poetry. That would be pretty awesome to be able to, to go out that way. But instead, I think these words sum up David's life. One commentator wrote that this is David's last will and testament. Um, Biblically, we think of last words. We think of Moses, or maybe we think of Jacob in Genesis 49. And both of them spoke of the future, and, and it was shaped by the promise which God had given them. And their response was belief. And similarly here with David, we see last words that are filled with hope in the future because they're shaped, they're forged by God's promise. Then it says it's the oracle, this is the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. Oracle, that's a word I 
never use. It's a word I rarely hear. I think it reminds me, or it reminds me of one of the Matrix movies. I think it's maybe the second one. Not that great of a movie, but but the word is weighty. It, it gets your attention. It, it um. It's telling us this is a declaration from God. David knew that this was God's word and we'll see that he trusted God's word. He describes himself as the son of Jesse and that might take you back to a couple other times in First and Second Samuel where he's called the son of Jesse and it's not a compliment. It's an insult. Uh, Saul won't even use his name David. He just calls him the son of Jesse. Nabal, similar thing. But David isn't insulting himself here. This is a statement of humility. He recognizes where the Lord has brought him from. The Lord is uh, the one who's elevated uh, David or raised David up. The NIV translates it, exalted by the Most High. And even in the last chapter that Matt took us through last week in verses 44 and 49, David views himself and his kingdom elevated to heights that actually hadn't yet been experienced. In verse 44, he said, you kept me as the head of nations. He speaks as if it's already happened. It's a certainty in his mind. This is a belief that God will accomplish what he has promised. He says that he's uh, the, anoint, uh, the anointed one, the God of Jacob. It is so clear to him that what's happened in his life, in, God, in being elevated, it is by God and God alone. And as God's anointed one of Jacob, this flashes us back to Hannah's song, back in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, where she said, the Lord will exalt the horn or the power of his anointed. It also reminds us of when David was anointed by Samuel and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. David, or God is the one who has made David great. Verse two, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Verse three, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. So before we even get to what God speaks about, David reminds us of who God is. David loves to describe God as his rock, the rock of his salvation. And and he does it not just here, he does it all over the place. How good is it that God is our rock? He's the rock of God's people. I'm, I'm so glad that Kat read The Wise and the Foolish Builder. We are not building our lives on a sandy foundation that will crumble. Right? You are no fool if you are building your life on Christ, the solid rock. Now, later in this chapter, we'll read about David's mighty men, and they're incredible, they're legendary, but they're no rock. A rock is immovable, it's unchanging. Our world, it just feels so unstable right now. But how much hope do we have as God's people because He is like a rock to us? Right? Any given day, we can look around at circumstances and think, man, this is crazy. But then we remember Yahweh is our rock. Okay, I'm fine. Yahweh is my rock. David, he was pursued by the king trying to kill him, pursued by armies. God is my rock. He's fighting a giant. God was his rock. Maybe, maybe you lose your job and you're panicked, but, but then you recall, no, God is my rock. Or some of you have just graduated college and you're entering 
one of the strangest job markets ever is I bet everyone's just about on a hiring freeze and yet God is your rock or kids you were dealing with school online and my guess is for a lot of you you thought maybe that was going to be okay for a bit but pretty soon you missed being at school which is a miracle in itself but God is your rock maybe you feel you felt really lonely in all this like I heard that even some introverts, after a couple weeks of shelter in place, were missing people. Uh, man, it was isolating. We get lonely, and yet we remember God is our rock who will never leave us. Maybe your body feels like it's failing you, but God is your rock. God, we thank you that you are the rock of your people. God, the rock of Israel, said to David, his anointing king, continuing in three, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, So a ruler over humanity, a righteous ruler, a ruler who who fears the Lord. And he says, this is what that ruler's like. Verse four, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that we're getting a tiny bit of right now, makes the grass sprout from the earth. Um, When there's a ruler that honors God, this righteous ruler, it, It's like that. It feels like the sun in the morning. That reminds me of camping near the Deschutes River. I I love to do that in central Oregon to raft, to fish. Um, But it gets cold at night. Like as hot as it gets during the day, it gets really cold some nights. And and you get up and and you get your fire going, get some coffee, and you're just longing for that sun to come up. But you're in the valley, right? You're blocked by the hills. And you can see that the sun has risen, but it hasn't made it over the valley yet. And you can see on the other, on the other side, the sun's getting down. Uh, the rays are coming down as the sun's coming up. And you're just waiting for it to hit you. And then finally it does. And it feels so good, so warm. He said, that's kind of what it's like. God says, this God-fearing righteous ruler, it's, it's sort of like that, or like the rain that saturates the ground to make the grass lush. This God-honoring ruler is like that. He's so, so good. And that might remind you of the Garden of Eden before sin enters into the picture. God's ruler, ruling righteously in the fear of the Lord, will be that good. We remember when David ruled really well. It wasn't that long ago. Back in chapter 8, it said he ruled with justice and equity. But by the end of the book, we're left longing for more than just a glimpse of this kind of ruler. And it, especially if this is your first time going through the book, and if you hadn't gotten ever to the New Testament, you might get to the end of this book and just feel hopeless and then you continue on and you read about the rest of the kings and most of them are terrible even the very few ones that are good they're still flawed and you can't help but ask and where are we going to find a righteous ruler like God is speaking about here and what's amazing is how full of hope David is verse 5 for does not my house stand so with God For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. David is filled with confidence, even with his sin, right? One might think, okay, that sin with Bathsheba, having Uriah killed, man, wouldn't that disqualify him? But David, 
He knows that God has promised. He remembers that God has forgiven him and he's banking on God's faithfulness to do what he said he would do. It's easy for us to believe when life is going well. It's easy for me to trust in God when, when uh, my family loves me, when, when the job's great, when you have friends, when you have good health and everyone you know is, is doing well, when you've got uh, maybe some money in the bank. It's easy to trust God. But when life is hard, trusting God isn't nearly as easy. And David's had a pretty rough life. His best friend died years ago. His dad wanted to kill him. His best friend's dad wanted to kill him. He's had multiple sons die, one of which was completely David's own fault. One of his sons violated one of his daughters. That daughter's full brother, Absalom, plotted to avenge his sister. He pulled it off and then he tried to take over the kingdom. So David had to flee the kingdom. David's nephew, Joab, was the commander of his army and he killed David's son, Absalom, going against a direct order from David. David's first wife, you might forget this, she hates him. His whole family is just a mess. The Philistines have been constantly coming at him David's men now towards the end of his life think that he's too vulnerable to go out to battle anymore. And that is what he was good at for so long. Again, we, it's easy for us to trust in God when things are doing good. I'm sure for David, back in chapter 8, it was pretty easy. And at this point, for David to continue to trust in God's promise, to continue to view God as a rock, is remarkable, I think. We will see next how much David trusts God. And, and, and so what is it that, that, that David is trusting in? Well, God has promised this ruler. God has promised that a king would come from his house, from his family. That it would be a, a dynasty. It would be a son of David. We've read the New Testament. We know this is Jesus. David knew God had promised He knew that this would happen. And now the promise isn't just called a promise, it's called an everlasting covenant that God would provide his anointed king, that Jesus would come, the eternal king whose kingdom would never end. We we look at his confidence here in verse five. He says, for will he not cause to prosper all, all my help and my desire? David's hope was not in great life circumstances. His hope was in God's promise that God would give a king from David's house, that this king would rule like no other king would be able to. David looked to the future and he was full of hope, which was fueled by God's promise. Are you filled with hope? At any point, it's easy to look right in front of you, right at what life is throwing at you and be very discouraged. If if your life is without God, if, if you don't trust in Jesus, I ask you, what would you be encouraged by? What hope would you have? W- would it be that we could find a cure really fast? Would it be that people would be less selfish and more considerate of others? Would it be in politics? Would it be in your abilities to make life better? Hope placed in anything but God's king is false hope. David's hope was forged by this promise to send the only one who could save. So again, where's your hope? Is it it in Jesus or in a relationship or your circumstances or or in finding pleasure in having fun, uh, maybe in, 
in your bank account, your retirement account, in your abilities? Where's your hope? David's words end with the alternative to hoping in God, verses 6 and 7. But worthless men are like thorns. They're thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. They're utterly consumed with fire. These worthless men, they're the exact opposite of those who trust in God. They're enemies of the Lord and destruction is their end. These are the two options. You trust in God's king and you're blessed or you're an enemy of the king and face the judgment of the king. I think First and Second Samuel have been pretty clear about that. Well, then 23 goes into the mighty men, and these men are incredible. Uh, I think it's probably difficult for any of us to relate to anything they've done. We don't face military enemies. I've never had to physically defend myself. Like even my little brother, like never fought me. Um, I, I don't even, I don't even have to kill my food, right? Certainly I've never defended like our house against enemies or, uh, or had to defend my family. So it, it might be hard to really appreciate what's going on here with these mighty men and even pinpoint why it's here. But here's what we see. We see human accomplishment and it's legendary human human accomplishment. We see astounding devotion to their king. And then we see that human heroes still fall totally short. So we get these snapshots, these mighty men, and I'm not going to go into all the stories. I trust that you have read these um, even this week. Uh, Joseph, Josheb, the first one, he's the chief of the three. And we hear that he defeated 800 men by himself in this battle. Uh, Eleazar, son of Dodo, and kids, if you're not paying attention, that's on your bingo sheet. Uh, Eleazar, son of Dodo, took out tons of Philistines, right? The the Israelites uh, withdrew, and I don't know if that was the strategy, and then the son of Dodo pops up and just whoops up, or, or if they were all freaking out and they left, and then he's like, no, I've got this. But he, he won a legendary battle that day. And then Shema, similar thing. He stood his ground when all the Israelites left, defended, uh, defended Israel's territory, and won a great victory for God's people. And these accomplishments, are they're wild to read about. Uh, but the author helps us see in verse 10 and 12, What's really going on here? Both with Eleazar and Shamar, we're reminded that it's the Lord that brought about a great victory. There was more here going on than three great warriors. This was God saving his people through these mighty men. God gave them the courage. He gave them the skills in battle. He gave them the strength, the, the, the mental capacity, the fortitude, the endurance to accomplish these saving acts for his people. And what each of these men did, they were great acts, but it was more than that. The real greatness is in what the Lord was doing. God was saving his people from their enemies. He was fighting their battles. It's easy for me to read these legendary warriors and miss uh, that it was God behind all of this. God was accomplishing what he had planned to do for his people. And I don't know about you, but I want to do great things. I don't golf much maybe once every other year, but every time I pick up a golf club, I feel like I have a chance to do something great. It hasn't happened yet. I think I have an okay swing, but I want to be a great dad. I want to be a great pastor. I want to be a great husband. You, my guess is you want to do something great. Maybe it's in your career. 
Maybe it's an organization you work with. Maybe it's your business. I don't know. We, we want greatness, but, but what is our greatness about? What, what, are the, what is it connected to? John Woodhouse, a commentator, a pastor, he writes this, and I think he nails it on the head. He says, the true measure of human achievements is how they relate to what God is doing. Much of, much of human achievement that we label as, as great, it's actually in defiance to God. We, we can think of the, the Tower of Babel in Scripture. Or Psalm 127 one says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Are you laboring in vain, trying to be great? Or are you laboring, trying to, the, to point to the greatness of God? How much energy do we spend on accomplishing something without any regard to God and His kingdom. And I think that um, I think that w- when we're thinking clearly, we realize, no, I, I don't want to labor in vain. I, I don't just want to build up my kingdom. I want to build up God's kingdom. I want to be a part of, of accomplishing things that glorify God. Well, next we see this astounding devotion. Uh, David, he's in uh, the cave with his men, cave of Adullam, and, and the Philistines are in the valley, they're in Bethlehem. And David says in verse 15, longingly it says, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. I don't think he was asking anyone to go do this. Right? David, I think he just remembers growing up in Bethlehem, a hot day, he's parched, and how good it was to get a drink out of that well, to be refreshed by that water. And he says, oh man, it would be so good. I love that well. We all have longings like that from time to time. Every few weeks, I long for a double-double from In-N-Out Burger. We get, we get what David's going through here. David didn't think anyone was going to do it, right? That's crazy to break through the Philistine lines just to get a cup of water, but that's just what his guys do. These three guys, they go... They break through the lines to get David a drink from the well that he remembers. And I'm sure on the way back, as the adrenaline's kind of dying off, they realize what they've done. At some point, they probably wondered, man, how's David going to react to this when we give him this cup of water? And, And he finds out it's from the well in Bethlehem. I'm sure they were surprised by him because David refused to drink it. If you're familiar with the story, he actually pours it out. And this is key. Verse 16, it says it was before the Lord. And we'll see, uh, we'll understand how David sees this in a moment. Verse 17, he says, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things are the three the mighty men did, or the three mighty men did. So King David has in his hands what these men had done, and he pours it out to the Lord. He gives it to the Lord. And, and maybe when you read this, you're like, David, what are you doing? Maybe it even seems disrespectful to you, but David thinks the exact opposite would be disrespectful, to, to simply enjoy this water, this display that these men brought to to their king, this devotion to their king. And and really, I think David sees it as devotion ultimately to God. I I don't know if the men understood that, but David sees this wasn't just 
just bringing something to the king and devotion to him, but it was devotion to God himself. And he took this devotion that was aimed at him and he pointed it to God who deserved it. One commentator said, David gave, gave the fruits of their devotion to the one to whom their devotion truly belonged. Are we devoted to the king? Is that really what our life is about? Are we devoted to King Jesus? Well, the chapter goes on. It, it gives some more heroic feats that I won't get into. And then verses 29, 24 through 39 give us a list of the, the 30, right? This is like an, an elite group. Think like David's Navy SEALs or Army Rangers or, or something like that. Um, and, and it's more than 30. Um, we read in 39. It, at some point it became 37, but the 30 sounded cooler than 37. They weren't going to change the name. But one thing you can't help but notice with, with all the mighty men, the 30, you can't help but notice how violent the group is. And, and it was a different time. Um, it, it was certainly a violent time. Like They did deal with enemies in, in ways that we don't. So it was necessary. It was good even for them to have an army that could protect the nation. But still, it's just so much violence and it's unsettling. It's far from the picture and the promise of peace for God's people, right? Early on, God had promised rest from all their enemies, and, and that, that, that hadn't happened yet. Another observation in verse 34, Bathsheba's father and grandfather are mentioned, right? These are, these are guys that knew David, that, that David knew and, and trusted. And then when you look at the very last name on the list, and it's Uriah the Hittite. Right, the husband of Bathsheba that David had killed. This is intentional. David's kingdom leaves you wanting more. I was marveling earlier this week, I was reading uh, Hosea and just blown away at how the author gets me to feel exactly what I'm supposed to feel. And I think First and Second Samuel do a great job of that too. It leaves us wanting more. David's kingdom, we're looking for a greater king and a greater kingdom. And so maybe the biggest flaw in David's kingdom is David himself, right? As great as he was at the pinnacle of his reign, we're reminded how flawed he was. As great as David's men were, we see how much violence came at their hands. This book leaves you longing for this righteous ruler. Right? We're supposed to want the king and the kingdom that David and his kingdom were foreshadowing. So as a reader of 1 and 2 Samuel, you might have gotten to this point. You might even be a, a little depressed by the end. But David wasn't. David put his hope in God's promise, in the eternal covenant that God was sending his king who would rule with righteousness David believed the promise because the promise was made by the rock of Israel. That was the one who promised that he would give the king in the line of David. Jesus, the king who would reign forever. Jesus, God's anointed one, would be the king that David failed to be. He would bring the kingdom that David's kingdom fell woefully short of. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I've said this uh, several times in the last three months that I've never experienced a time in my life where the world is so uncertain. I can't remember a time when circumstances of life were so hard to predict, where I thought I had a plan and it was changing within a matter of days. And I think this year has probably, this year has probably been hard for everyone. Um, for some, uh, it's been especially unsettling, right? You feel maybe like you can't get solid footing. I think for maybe all of us, God has exposed just how much we trust in things other than Him. Whether it's circumstances, whether it's, whether it's having your predictable life all ordered. Maybe it's that you trust in, in strong people in your life. Maybe you're the strong one. Right? Maybe you trust mostly in what you can do and accomplish. But our only real hope, the only real hope, is in the Lord's promise, in His everlasting covenant. He's given us Jesus the King from the house of David who reigns eternally, the only one who can save us from our true enemies, sin and death. And remember, our King Jesus laid down His life for us, right? Instead of winning through violence, He submitted to the violence of the cross because we needed our King to take on God's wrath to pay for sin. So the blood that he shed, it was his own. And, and it was so that we can be reconciled even while we we're enemies of God. And all this comes only by faith. It's only by trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension. So do you believe in God's promised King Jesus, that his death, his resurrection was enough, that he's coming back again? Is that where our hope truly is, church? Or are you trusting in something else? Something that will fail you? Let me close with Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that, that we have much reason to hope, that our hope is, is sure, Lord. All other things that I say I hope will happen, um, even like today, hoping it wouldn't rain, those things aren't sure, Lord, but, but in you we have hope that, that is, is totally secured. It's, it's been ordered. It, it, it has happened. Jesus has already come and paid the price, and, and, and he, will, he will come. He will make all things new. He will gather his people. And Lord, I, I know that it's hard for us, God. We get, I get distracted by circumstances in life. Lord, it's been a weird, hard few months for a ton of reasons. Some have nothing to do with COVID. Some have nothing to do with protests. I know we've got people in our, in our church that are just dealing with really hard, hard things. God, I pray that our hope would only be in you. Lord, that, that we would only trust in you. You're so gracious to strip from us the other things that that we trust in and to show us that they will never work. They will never satisfy. They will never deliver on the promise. Only you can deliver on the promises you've made. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. And, and I ask that you 
would be our treasure. Lord, that our hope would be in you and in you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen.